Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, a podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. And I'm Irene. And today we're talking about the early years of the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. It will, of course, include period typical homophobia, as well as lesbophobia, transphobia, and biophobia within the community. It will also include an extended section discussing police brutality. There are also brief references to recreational drug use, mentions of the AIDS epidemic, and a few swear words in quotes. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this one and check out any of our other episodes. So as I alluded to at the top of the podcast, we're not going to be covering the entirety of the 40-year-plus history of the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras today. That was just a little much. Yeah. We're also not going to be discussing it in a chronological way because, frankly, I tried to write the script like that and it just kind of came out quite boring. The development of Mardi Gras is in many ways quite inspirational, but it is also, when you get down to it, kind of just a story of, like, organisation and gradually increasing numbers of floats. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a lot of fun. So instead what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the first Mardi Gras in 1978, and then we're going to just talk about a few sort of common issues and themes that came up when I was reading about the first, like, 15 years or so, and then just tell some sort of fun stories and things like that. Sounds good. So no doubt there are going to be things that I have just, like, skipped over sort of, like, huge topics that we could have included, but again, this is a 40-year history of a huge Australian sort of gay institution, so... Yeah. We're all just going to have to accept that. This episode is also a rare one for us in that there isn't really much in terms of like a protagonist or like main characters in quotes, just because again, with like a 40 year history or even with a 15 year history, as we'll be covering here, there are so many people who put a huge amount of time and labor into this. Mm-hmm. And so like focusing on even any like few of them was fairly impossible. This is one of the few Australian episodes that we've done, and it's definitely some of the more recent Australian history we've done, which is very exciting because this is quite directly relevant to our lives, Mm -hmm. which isn't normally true. Although ironically, none of us have been to Mardi Gras. No, we're from Melbourne and um, so hate Sydney and everything it stands for. (laughs) I've literally (laughs) never been there. (laughs) I've been to Sydney. I haven't been to Mardi Gras. So even though I'm not going to really talk about any particular individuals and we're going to skip over a lot of stuff, I did, I guess, want to make it clear that in researching this, I reflected a lot on the fact that the history we're talking about now quite directly led to material reality of my everyday life and rights that I take for granted as a queer person yeah Mm -hmm. in Australia today and that was very emotional and I love everyone in this bar (laughs) Um, so I'm sad that I'm not really able to I feel really do that history justice in the scale of like what the project we're doing today is but I just wanted to make it clear that it was something that I was conscious of the entire time I was researching this, particularly as there will be times later on where I'm critical of some aspects of Mardi Gras and its history. So all of that being said, let's talk about Mardi Gras. Let's start by giving a very brief introduction to what it was like to be a gay person in New South Wales in the late 1970s. As you might expect, in 1978, gay rights were very limited in Australia, in all states and territories apart from South Australia, which is where I'm from. And the ACT, sex between consenting adult men was a crime. Homosexuality was a crime. Is that why you turned out queer? Yes. Good. It's in the water. And there's <laughs> what no... are their socks? That was very homophobic. <laughs> I'll leave. <laughs> and there were no anti-discrimination laws for queer people. Gay people were therefore at risk of losing their homes, their jobs, and their families if they came out. Mark Gillespie, who was one of those present in the first Mardi Gras March in 1978, says that as a young emigre in my 20s from the Queensland bush, like many gay men and lesbians from the country in those days, I was in effect an internally displaced person. We were refugees in our own country. Which I think gives you a pretty good idea of what the atmosphere was like. Mm -hmm. There was a gay rights movement in Australia at the time. It was quite influenced by events in America, most notably Stonewall. Which you can hear about in our episode. (laughs) So Stonewall happened in 1969, and this is nine years later by that time. Um, Reading about Stonewall and the ensuing protests and nascent pride parades in America, John Ware and Christopher Pohl had set up the Campaign Against Moral Persecution, or CAMP, which was Sydney's first political gay group in 1970. 
By the late 1970s, there were a variety of different groups of different political persuasions, so some more assimilationist, some more radical, who did things like demonstrating in the streets and lobbying politicians and working with other groups, such as students and feminists and communists. There was also a gay social scene, which is often viewed as being separate and even at odds with the activist scene. And there were, you know, gay newspapers and magazines and gay venues such as bars and discos and saunas and whatnot. So although it is a very difficult and oppressive time to be gay, there is certainly an active gay community in Sydney. In April 1978, Ken Davis and Anne Talv, whose surname I may be mispronouncing, uh, and who were two Sydney activists, received a letter from the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Committee exhorting activists around the world to organise events in the last week of June to commemorate Stonewall's ninth anniversary. I knew that, like, Pride or Stonewall commemorations started in New York and then spread around the world, but I never thought about, like, people in America actually sitting down and writing to other countries mm. and being like, please commemorate Stonewall with us this year. Yeah, American gay activists were doing this specifically in response to a lot of, like, newly revitalised or newly increasing homophobia, mm-hmm. um, specifically regarding an attempt to repeal anti-discrimination laws and so forth that had been passed by that. Specifically with people like Anita Bryant, who we talked about in the Harvey Milk episode, and this is very much the sort of political situation that Harvey Milk was trying to deal with, so you can go and listen to our episode on that if you want to. (laughs) (laughs) Hear us cry live on air. The Stonewall riots hadn't been reported in mainstream Australian newspapers at the time, but the Australian gay community was very aware of them because their significance had been spread by the American gay press and just like... You know how, like, all gay people know each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is how it is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's hard for me to know whether that's not reported in Australian media as a kind of homophobia thing, or whether the Australian media is just like, we don't report riots that happen in New York. It's certainly at least somewhat a homophobia thing. I mean, there's no way that they wouldn't have reported, like... Kent State shootings and things like that. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, also, I don't really get into it here, but for the first, like, I don't know, at least decade or so of its existence, the mainstream press did not report Mardi Gras. Yeah, okay. By mm-hmm. the time Mardi Gras was, like, the biggest festival happening in Australia, a lot of mainstream newspapers still didn't cover it at all. Yeah, Which is okay. bizarre and obviously motivated by homophobia. Yeah. yeah. They started to do it, many of them, for the first time during the AIDS epidemic because they could specifically kind of connect it to AIDS and denigrate it because of that and say, like, this parade that's happening, if you go to it, you'll, you'll get, get AIDS. AIDS and die. Yeah. yeah. So there's certainly an element of homophobia. Despite Stonewall being very important to the Australian gay community, it hadn't actually been specifically commemorated in Australia until 1978. Ken Davis arranged a meeting of activists and suggested that they make some sort of gesture of solidarity with Stonewall for this anniversary. A man named Ron Austin suggested that they have a street parade with music and costumes and dancing, so very reminiscent of what Mardi Gras is today. And this was inspired by footage that he'd seen of San Francisco's parade. He said, we had to get people out. It needed to be non-political. It had to be a party. It had to be a celebration. It had to be devoid of banners and slogans and daylight because people were afraid to be seen. And that's when it fermented in my mind that we have a party. It's interesting that he had that idea, like, it has to be non-political, it has to be a party, like, Mm. straight away. Did he say devoid of daylight? Yes. So So, he is just planning to have this at night? Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's a party. You don't have a party in the afternoon. Um, I think it's interesting because we're going to discuss more about the tensions between Mardi Gras as a political event and as a celebration. Yeah. Mm. And I think quite often when we talk about pride parades, not just in Australia, but more generally being a party, we tend to sort of be like, they were political, they were right, Mm. they've become a celebration, they've become a party. And I think it's interesting that he's sort of viewing that as not something that was valuable to do because they'd already kind of done away with most of the political stuff and they could have a party now. But it's something that was necessary because it was so dangerous to be political and this made things a bit more safe for people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that is very interesting because I assume, because that's the way that I've heard about it in mm. thinking of America as an example, like it started as a protest and then eventually they were like, we're going to depoliticize this and just put on some nice costumes and it's just going to be a party. But no, it's the opposite of that. Mm. His friend Lance Gallen said that he was quite surprised that the idea was sort of picked up by the activist scene who was arranging this, uh, quote, because traditionally we'd march with banners and around issues of discrimination or intentional solidarity. And the idea of having music in the street and dancing and everything was outside of our experience or anybody else's experience about political activities. 
because this was such a novel way to have a demonstration, some people were quite hard to convince because they were used to a more sort of traditional, you know, we march down this street in daylight with banners and we chant some things and then we mm-hmm. have a rally at the end sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Max Pierce, who was an activist at the time, said, I think we all thought the idea was pretty silly. Um, <laughs> Ken Davis said, I was a bit sceptical, not because I thought it was a bad idea or unprincipled or wrong or anything, just because I didn't think it would work. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless... They decide that they're going to have a party. It's announced, it's publicised, people are invited to dress up colourfully. Quote, the more outrageous, the better. (laughs) On June 24th of 1978, a march was held in the morning, which was more of a, like, sort of traditional demonstration, and 500 people showed up to that. The Mardi Gras was held that night, and between 1 and 2,000 people showed up to that. So I assume it wasn't called the Mardi Gras at this point, being in June. Um, oh, I don't know, actually. I don't think that... It didn't start being called Mardi Gras when it was moved to summer. Um, I don't know if it was officially titled, but it, it was, okay. I think, called Mardi Gras from, like, its earliest years, if not from this day. I didn't actually think to Because Mardi Gras is traditionally in February. You mean in America? No, I mean the Mardi Gras is the start of Lent as the, like, oh, traditional um, festival is in February. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm not Catholic. <laughs> that's fair uh, like, I didn't know where Mardi Gras Mardi came from yeah, yeah that's I what didn't know is. of Mardi Gras from Anne Rice novels Mardi Gras is pancake day yeah it's a big like holiday pancake before Tuesday, you before Lent starts oh, yeah, it's <laughs> now, you know, I don't know like I, okay. I didn't think to question that to be honest the books I was reading and so forth even when I was talking about 1978 1979 a few years before it was moved to summer were just like yeah we had a Mardi Gras Oh, okay. Maybe they always call it that just to describe like an outlandish, yeah, extravagant party where they dressed up. The case, yeah. I, there was certainly never any mention of anyone being like, "We should move it to February." Oh, that's when Mardi Gras is. Let's like sort of appropriate that imagery or anything like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. So maybe I mean, that was always its name. So obviously, the Mardi Gras held at night had many more people than the march held in the morning. But even five hundred people were huge numbers for Sydney gay events at the time. Ken Davis said, It was based on a new feeling in Sydney and a frustration among lesbians and gay men that although the movements in other countries, notably the United States, were making advances and fighting, not much was happening here. At 9.45 at night, people started to gather on Oxford Street, which is the gay street in Sydney, as I understand it. I'm aware of this, yes. Some of them were in costume, but most of them were in winter coats. (laughs) June is a very cold time in Australia, as we can currently attest. Yeah. yeah, true. Yeah. Yes. I was thinking when you were like, they said everyone should dress up. I was like, how much can you dress up at nighttime in June, though? Mm. Music was being played from the back of a truck, which one person noted was essentially the first pride flute. This is like some random, like. Yeah, you know, it's just a truck. Good. It's got a PA system on the back. They're playing, like, gay songs. It's not, like, super dressed up or anything. It's no, just it's a truck. A truck. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I wonder what the gay songs were. I wanted to do this when I did the Stonewall episode, because, like, there were several times when people mentioned, oh, this song was playing in the bar, or when this song came on, I felt like this. I wanted to make a playlist of, like, all the songs people mentioned playing in Stonewall. Kimberly O'Sullivan remembers there being signs saying things like, better blatant than latent, and how about a close encounter with your own kind? <laughs> <laughs> I like the second one the best. <laughs> that doesn't I'll make you a me. t-shirt. Thank you. <laughs> At about 10.30, about a thousand people began to march, singing and sharing out of the bars and into the streets. And so as they went, they sort of like picked up more and more people from the gay bars they were walking past. By this time, unbeknownst to the marchers, two plainclothes policemen had joined the march wearing gay solidarity badges. So to be clear, they did have a permit for this march. Nevertheless, Under the Summary Offences Act of 1970, police had a lot of power to arrest people at public demonstrations. There was frankly some confusion in the sources that I read over the exact legality of the march. So some said that the police herded them into an area that they didn't have a permit for as an excuse for arresting them. Others Mm. saying that the police just kind of decided on the spot arbitrarily, this is no longer a legal gathering. I've heard that story about the police herding them into mm. a space mm. where they're not yeah. legal anymore before. I've heard it too, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah like, I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah. yeah. In any case, it's clear that the police don't have any wish to actually disperse the protest. This is not a concern over public safety or anything like that. They're just wanting to put gay people in a situation where they can beat a bunch of them up and arrest them. So yeah. the legality of it is kind of real really isn't it the police set up two blockades trapping the protesters between them there were obviously a bunch of police who were in uniform in addition to those who were in plain clothes there and those who were in uniform had removed their identifying numbers and gave no announcement to disperse 
Like, I knew that the police were going to be garbage in this episode, but that's a new level of garbage. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's is gonna... it a new level of garbage? That's well, just the same level of garbage. Specifically like... removing their identifying numbers. I think what that shows as well is this isn't like there happened to be a confrontation and once that mm. escalated, the police became violent. It is very clearly a calculated decision yeah. by the police beforehand to... Bash gays. Yeah. Yeah. To permit this march, but then when it actually happens, to infiltrate it and then to show up and to just be incredibly violent to people. Yeah. They removed the truck and thereby the PA system and therefore the key to controlling the crowd by the organisers. Mm-hmm. The organisers asked to be provided with means to tell the crowd to disperse if it was illegal. They were happy to do that and the policeman said, fuck off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So at 11.30, the police set upon the crowd with incredible violence. People recall being scared for their lives. One woman remembers just grabbing her girlfriend and hiding under a parked car, just hoping it didn't pull away. Regardless of whether people were resisting, you know, so there were people who were throwing bottles and garbage at the police and Mm -hmm. sort of generally resisting, or if they were peacefully trying to disperse or run away, the police indiscriminately used force to arrest people. They were not informed that they were under arrest or of their rights. They were forcibly dragged by multiple officers into paddy wagons. In order to make it clear the severity of the situation, I'm going to describe some violence now. Okay. Okay. So people were thrown into paddy wagons. In some cases, the police then followed them in to beat them in the paddy wagons. One young man was thrown into a wagon and the policeman then repeatedly slammed the doors on his legs. One of the wagons, which was full of people who'd been arrested, was driven away, turned onto an empty street, and the officer then accelerated it to a high speed and then slammed on the brakes. A passerby heard screaming inside. Um, A man who had beat his fists on the bonnet of a wagon outside the police station was seized by four or five police, dragged by the hair to the garage where his head was beaten against the metal gate. So, you know, obviously, yeah, this is an incredibly vicious and intense amount of violence that's being done. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted that to be clear. Overall, 30 men and 23 women, so 53 people, were arrested and taken to Darlinghurst Police Station. They were denied legal counsel and medical attention. They were not told what they were being charged with. At least one man, Peter Murphy, was taken to a private room and beaten because he was known to the police from various other protest movements. A woman with a head injury was denied medical attention and after that ended up in hospital where she suffered blackouts. The people who were crowded into cells at Darlinghurst Police Station were obviously incredibly frightened. They didn't know what was happening and what was going to happen to them. But the rest of the crowd, much of the rest of the crowd, followed them to the police station and stayed outside all night, protesting and calling out to them. And those who were imprisoned remembered feeling that their community was there for them and that, you know, they weren't going to be abandoned and drawing some comfort. So Neville Rann was the New South Wales Premier at the time, and on the Channel 10 News he said, These sorts of things happen. I think it is unfortunate that a couple of police had to receive hospital attention, as well as some people in the parade or demonstration. So essentially a good old Trump style. I'm sure there's good people on both sides. Sort nice job, Nev. Uh, yeah, thanks, Nev. The fact that he said, like, police first as well. I mean, no, no politician is going to have stronger ties to the gays than to the police at this point. That's true. That is true. So that is the, like, rough part of it. Two days later, on the 26th of June, the charges were read and a large crowd gathered outside the court case to try and come in and hear them. Most were charged with taking part in an illegal procession. Police surrounded the court and refused to let people in, including some of those who were there to hear their charges being read. Oh, whoops. They were told that if you go into that court, you will be trespassing and you will be arrested. That's not how it works. No, it's not. In trying to get into the courthouse, another seven people were arrested. On the 15th of July, 2,000 people marched in the largest gay rights protest in Australia at that time. 14 more were arrested. And in a protest by a gay group on August 27th, 104 more people were arrested. What? Oh my god. Yes. So for the rest of 1978 and into 1979, the community continued to march and to demand that the charges of all of these people be dropped and that they be given adequate right to march. The charges were taken to court in November and they largely were dropped. Some people were charged, some people had already pleaded guilty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were charged, but for the most part, people got off. That's good. However, everyone who was arrested had their names published in the newspaper twice, once when they were arrested and once when the charges were dropped, including, you know, their occupation and general identifying details, their address in a lot of cases. What? Yeah. Oh my they god. They published their addresses in the newspaper? Yeah, so What kind of insanity? This was a thing that was happening in America in the sixties and like earlier than that, but I was not aware that it was also happening here in the seventies. Yeah, I don't know. 
of any specific repercussion for any individual. But again, you know, given that this time, we don't have any anti we don't have any anti discrimination law and things like that. Yeah. I'm very confident in saying that there must have been people who lost their jobs because of this. Yeah. And who lost families because of this and things like that. Tony Morning Herald sucked then and it sucks now. Yeah, it I was about to say, it's a bad paper and all it always has been. Yeah. On the eleventh of May nineteen seventy nine, the law related to permits for street marches was changed. So the Summary Offences Act of 1970, which I mentioned before, was repealed, and the Offences in Public Places Act was instead put into law. Police would now not have basically complete power to refuse a group uh, the right to march. So Mm -hmm. previously, like, some group would be like, hey, we'd like to have a march in the streets, and it was pretty much up to police discretion to say yes or no. Now they would have to convince a magistrate that a proposed march posed risk of danger and was a public nuisance in order to refuse it. So it would be much more difficult to do so. Yeah. Do you know why the law was changed? Because they've been protesting about it for over a year. Okay, I was wondering if that was, like, just a direct, they protested about it enough that finally it... I said over a year. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. People had been protesting about it for a long Mm. time, like, even before that. Mm Mm-hmm. I think Vietnam War protesters. Oh, yeah. Like, it came in at that time. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It is worth noting that it wasn't viewed as being entirely satisfactory by activists, not just gay activists, but, yeah. you know, anti-war protesters and women's rights activists and communists and so forth. Um, you could still be arrested for offensive behavior or obstruction of traffic and things like that, which are obviously pretty easy to say that someone was doing if you mm-hmm. want to arrest them yeah. because you're a policeman who is a bad person. Yes. Given the continuous protests of 1978 and the start of 1979, there was no doubt that there would be a 1979 Mardi Gras. Mm. Um, And that's pretty much where our chronological history of Mardi Gras is going to end. Obviously, there was also a 1980 Mardi Gras and a 1981 Mardi Gras, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. There was a 2019 Mardi Gras. Yes. You see how this works. This is how it goes. I have always wondered why 1978, because I knew they marched in commemoration of Stonewall, but I was always like, why nine years after Stonewall? But it makes sense if somebody just wrote a letter and was like, can you guys march? And And they were like, like, yeah. Yeah. The fact that this continued and grew after that is fairly... Mm. Yeah, like... Like, I'm sure there were a number of people who were just like, that was terrifying and I'm never marching again. Yeah, Yeah, probably, I'm sure. And there were definitely a few times that they came pretty close to bankruptcy and things like that and Mm -hmm. not being able to put the next one on. Because it, as it goes on, like, it obviously changes in character, as we'll discuss a bit, and it grows massively. um, And... They have two parties every year, essentially, to, like, fundraise for yeah the whole thing. Yeah. And there definitely became this expectation that, like, it continued to get bigger and it continued to kind of outdo itself every year. The mm, organizers yeah. found increasingly difficult to sort of satisfy. Yeah, yeah. But, like, they did it. <laughs> they're still doing it. <laughs> I think they're pretty secure now. I yeah. would assume. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I assume it's a mess behind the scenes because everything is a mess behind yes. the scenes. But I don't think it's going to stop happening anytime soon. Yes. But yeah, by the late 1980s, Mardi Gras was effectively the gay event in Australia, the most high-profile one, the biggest one, the one that people look forward to all year. And it, I must reluctantly admit, still Still holds that title today. (laughs) (laughs) We have the Midsummer Festival in Melbourne, which is very good, but we can't like honestly say to anyone like oh but like we've got Midsummer, so whatever about Mardi Gras. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, this is not really (laughs) no. So good on it. Now I wanted to step away from the chronological and start talking by sort of issue or theme, as I said. And the first thing I wanted to discuss was that tension between Mardi Gras as being a protest and therefore something political and just being a celebration and a party that can be non-political. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As we've already touched on, the first Mardi Gras had tried to bring together the political and the sort of more celebratory uh, sides of the gay community. Mm-hmm. The second Mardi Gras actually tried to emphasize the party elements more in order to get more interest out and to make it bigger, sending out letters to gay groups saying that they were open to, quote, any gay man or lesbian who supports the idea of a gay festival in the streets of Sydney, either for political reasons or just because they think it could be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting because I assumed, because obviously we've already talked about how they started out with the idea that it could be a party. Mm-hmm. And then I assumed it that, like, with what happened to the first one, the second one would be, like, a very political 
thing. But I mean, I feel like to some extent the fact that they're running it again is already inherently political. True, and still running it as a party, I guess, is also a political decision in a way. Yeah. We yeah. will get into that, okay. as you may expect. There was actually very little response. A lot of gay men and lesbians at that time, most gay men and lesbians were disinterested in political involvement, and they understood Mardi Gras to basically be... As one of the sources I read described it, a political demonstration in drag. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, those who were political saw Mardi Gras as not political enough and therefore being disrespectful and pointless. In 1980, an anonymous lesbian activist in the gay community news said, We chanted slogans against oppressive police attacks and wars and for the revolution. Unfortunately, we were drowned out by the music truck. I asked myself what the purpose of the Mardi Gras is. Isn't it the commemoration of a brutal attack on American gays? Didn't police attack lesbians and gay men in Sydney two years ago? But let the music play on, take a swig or a toke, and let's all get out of it for a good time. So, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see both sides of that debate, really. Like, they're trying to make a thing that pleases everyone. Mm. And they're going to make a thing that pleases no one. Yes. I mean, obviously that's not the case, because here we are in 2019 with, like... Yeah, but people still, like... (laughs) Yeah, oh, no, yeah. Go to it, but criticize it widely every year. That's like, true. Yeah, yeah, that it is trying to be an event for like the entire community as much as possible, and you're just not gonna yeah pull it off. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try. No, no, I, not gonna I don't think it should yeah. stop. But yeah. yeah, in 1981, an open forum was held discussing whether Mardi Gras should be moved to summer, and also discussing what its aim should be. It was moved to summer. It stays in summer to this day. A good call. Yeah, moving it to summer was seen as very apolitical, though. It moved it away from Stonewall's anniversary and was designed to encourage festivities, given that summer was a more pleasant time to be out in the streets in the middle of winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This influenced and was influenced by it quickly moving away from being a commemoration of Stonewall specifically and kind of just becoming its own beast. Obviously, they're still trying to define exactly what that beast is, Mm -hmm. but it is Mm -hmm. specifically regarding Stonewall consciously stepping away from that political purpose. Mm. There was, as you may expect, very heated discussion at that meeting about what the purpose was. A quote from the Sydney Star Observer at the time sort of sums up the question they were grappling with, saying, what is the goal of Mardi Gras? Is it a political demonstration to demand gay rights, or is it a celebration of coming out, with its only political goals being to demonstrate the size and variety of the gay community and to establish its right to be? The answer that was decided on at that forum was one that tried to balance the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the purpose was declared to be a celebration with the political goal of demonstrating the size and variety of the community to garner more support for gay rights. And it's gone on to try and balance those two things ever since and always will. <laughs> As you mentioned before, the argument has often been made that Mardi Gras is inherently political. In a 1983 statement issued by the organising committee, they say... There are some gay people who say that the gay Mardi Gras should be non-political. This is not the view of the organising committee. The Mardi Gras could not be non-political even if it wanted to be. Craig Johnston, writing for the Sydney Star Observer in 1983, discussing the importance of queer visibility and how the character of Mardi Gras was sort of like a feature rather than a bug, said... The very fact of organisation by homosexuals for homosexuals is a resistance and challenge to the dominant view of homosexuals as an inferiorised people. The vitality, sense of fun, creativity, contemplativeness, and determination these events epitomise reflect the optimism there's a new day dawning. Even if you don't view Mardi Gras' existence as inherently political, the parade has never been devoid of political messages. Laws making it illegal for two men to have sex in New South Wales were repealed eventually in 1984, and Mardi Gras is thought to have had an influence by convincing MPs that there was a sizable gay constituency and that it wasn't just a fringe concern due to the large amount of straight supporters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The 1991 parade was more overtly political than most. It was headed by AIDS activists protesting the uh, lack of easy access to certain AIDS drugs. Returning to the psychological importance of Mardi Gras, one man said that even in the darkest years of the AIDS epidemic, we believed if we could keep Mardi Gras going, we could survive anything. If we could keep on celebrating our sexuality and our community, even as we cared for friends dying around us, anything was possible. And it's hard to view that as a non-political event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I think ultimately all these people are saying like, you can't get a bunch of queer people out in the street having a party and have it not be political. Like that's, mm. that's true. It can't be an apolitical event. Yeah, that's true. I think the real question is not if it's political or not, but what sorts of political issues the community chooses to prioritise and bring to the fore. Yeah. And we can see this, I think, you know, most recently with the dominating of the mainstream sort of like, 
queer political scene with marriage equality in yeah. Australia, mm-hmm. yeah. which was kind of like the only political issue people were willing to sort of give airtime to surrounding the community in this country for a long time. It Such felt like. a long time. And that was something that was, was very widely discussed and criticised within the community as to like who exactly this benefits more than other people and so yeah. forth. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference between it, is it political to get out on the street and party and like if we're going to specifically have like banners or activists leading the protest or something, what do they stand for? Mm. I think also that it is still inherently worthwhile and inherently political for a gay pride parade to happen yeah. this year in 2019. Mm-hmm. But that just like being out on the streets and being visible as a queer person although it, to be clear, absolutely still is valuable, is far less inherently radical and revolutionary mm. than it was in 1978. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah. think that as just the visibility of the community becomes something that we can take for granted a little bit more, that we need to keep constantly kind of turning that issue over in our mind, that, like, are we just sort of using that as a, like, well, we can do whatever we want and say whatever we want and forget about whatever parts of our community we want to because what we're doing is inherently political anyway. Yeah, yeah, I get mm-hmm. you. Um, yeah. It is, of course, worth saying that often the issues that do get pushed to the forefront are issues that only affect a part of the community or benefit a certain part of the community more than others. Yeah. And often it ignores issues that affect people who aren't cisgender, who aren't middle class, who aren't white, who aren't mm-hmm. gay men, and so yeah. forth. And yeah. I think that leads us neatly into our next discussion about who Mardi Gras is for. There is a kind of thing, just while we're on Mm -hmm. that, where it's like, absolutely, what political issues the community pushes. Like, there are issues there in, you know, who benefits and Mm. what parts of the community that prioritises. But there's also kind of an issue with insisting that every queer event has to be a protest. Like, every queer event is pushing for something. Like, I can see the value there in having a Mardi Gras where it's like, your queerness doesn't have to be political today. You can just Mm. celebrate. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. That's Mm. true. Yeah. Because, yeah, I feel like so much of being queer is fighting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, I just want to dress up in a dramatic outfit and have a party. Yeah, it might be, I think, inherently worthwhile as well, being like, this isn't an event about fighting. Mm. Yeah, that's true. So who is Mardi Gras for? A concern of the committee from its earliest days was trying to reach out to people who were not well represented as either planners or attendees of Mardi Gras and its parties. Mm-hmm. Graham Carberry, who wrote uh, the book that I got most of my information from, which is you know, funnily enough, called A History of the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Thanks, Graham. (laughs) Thanks, Graham. Notes that this included ethnic minorities and those not from the inner city, but although they were occasionally mentioned, their involvement was not expanded on. The focus instead was on lesbians and also on if straight people were allowed to come. I see. Okay. Hmm. Right. Lesbian involvement was quite low in the early days. The committee generally had either one lesbian or none lesbians. Mm Mm-hmm. This was typical of many ostensibly mixed-gender gay groups at the time. They were run generally entirely by men. They were rarely, if ever, focused on lesbian-specific issues, whilst commonly being focused on gay male-specific issues. The media, the gay press, and the commercial gay scene were also all very focused on gay men as opposed to lesbians. And so it was common for lesbians to understand these groups as fundamentally not being for about them and to instead put their time and energy into lesbian-specific groups. Mm. In the late 1980s, lesbians began to assert themselves and their issues in mixed gay groups more strongly, and this also happened at Mardi Gras. They became an increasing part of the membership, the committee, and the paid staff, which existed by this point. As part of this, lesbians fought for the names of various groups to be changed from the gay whatever group to the gay and lesbian group. And so in 1988, the Sydney Gay Mardi Gras changed its name to the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Yes. Which it is still called today. Which it is still called today. I was about to say, this fight continues, but different. It's nice to make one change, but sometimes you should make continual changes. Yes. Most of the material that Graham Carberry drew on actually came from ALGA, which is the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives in Melbourne, because he was from Melbourne and not from Sydney, which I thought was interesting. Speaking of archives... Mardi Gras had its own archive for a while. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, So Kimberly O'Sullivan, who I've mentioned before and will mention again, 
was an archivist by profession and she asked the committee a couple years in if they had a complete set of their posters and they realised with a shock that they did not and they authorised her to open an archive for their records and to complete the set of posters they had to go and buy them off of people. (laughs) (laughs) Good on Kimberly though. From 1989 to 1992 she worked as an archivist for Mardi Gras. One of the things she did was to increase accessibility of these materials to the public. Unfortunately, like obviously she couldn't be present at all times in the archive guarding it and the community didn't really treat it as an archive but a freely available sort of collection of resources. So people would just kind of like take things if they thought they would be helpful for say promoting Mardi Gras or anything like that Uh and then often these items were not returned or they were damaged by rough handling. There are also issues with like photographs being used for promotional materials regardless of who had taken the photo and what the copyright was. Yeah. Kimberly eventually padlocked the door shut. Okay. Someone pried the padlock off, so she put a steel bar over the door, but she was then ousted from this position and replaced with someone who had no archival experience, which did not go well, and in 1994 the materials were transferred to the State Library of New South Wales. As, like, someone who's done archival research, I can't really imagine an archive where people want to get in so desperately... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, archives are usually like, how can we get the public to come? Yeah, yeah, like... Yeah, I'm disappointed that it's in the State Library in New South Wales and not in the Lesbian and Gay Archives. Mm. I mean, I guess I get why they didn't want to send it to Melbourne. Yeah, like... Sydney have archives? Yeah, I think there's one in Sydney and one in... I want to say Newcastle. I don't really know how it is because, like, ours is called the Australian one and theirs are called, like, the Sydney one and the Hunter one or whatever. But, like, also our art gallery is called the National Gallery of Victoria, which is bizarre. Yeah, but it's not our So maybe we just do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't Um, know. Yeah, I don't know, because I'm torn between being, like, let's just put everything in Alga for the sake of, Mm. like, it all being together, but also... I feel like it should probably be in Sydney, really. Yeah, and I guess it is good to spread resources out because, Mm. like... If you're researching in Sydney, you can't afford yeah, to fly down like, to yeah, Melbourne and look through our archives. Unfortunately, organisations like Alga don't have the time and money to digitise all of the material. Yeah. Do you think if I went in with a scanner, I would was like, guys, I'm doing this? That would be okay? I think about this daily. To return to the lesbians, in 1989, a new committee was elected and six of the 14 were lesbians. Oh. This was met with some shock and discomfort by the gay male community, <laughs> with some calling it a lesbian takeover. <laughs> Kath Phillips, who had been man, (laughs) why are you like this? Kath Phillips, who had been elected president um, and was a lesbian, (laughs) pointed out it could hardly be a takeover when they still didn't have a majority, and said, "quote If people feel lesbian involvement is that threatening, they have to look at how they view women." True. I agree with Kath. I also agree with. I mean, that's a thing that we've all heard this statistic many times of how men think that women taking up like. A third of the space's majority. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Like, that's unfortunately how it is. It sure is. That would have been so frustrating for yeah, those six women. Count. Yeah. Especially when the number's, like, that obvious. You're mm. like, there are 14 people in this room. We can count them. Mm. Yeah, you don't need complex statistics skills to know this. Yeah, you don't need to, like, do a study. Like, gays are pretty bad at math, but there's a limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The 1990 Mardi Gras showed the effect of this new lesbian presence on the board with higher lesbian involvement and more events catered specifically towards lesbians. By 1993, a study found that only 14% of those attending the Mardi Gras party were women, however. Half of the women were straight. Um, The involvement of lesbians was much higher in cultural events such as theatre, though, Mm -hmm. leading the study to conclude that while the boys go out to play, the girls go out to plays. (laughs) Like, that pun's cute, but that's not the point. (laughs) I thought it was funny. (laughs) It doesn't sort of say, like, what involvement is overall at that point, but... I think it's trying to make the point that just because they're not at the party, it doesn't mean that they're 14% of people attending Mardi Gras by that point. They're more substantial. It uh-huh. does continue to be an issue. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the fact that women aren't particularly interested in going to your nighttime street party is probably a safety thing, frankly. Yeah, like... It's not in- a street party. It's not at the showgrounds. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're... Yeah, I guess. It may be, like, that doesn't mean that women don't like this kind of event. It may just mean that women don't feel safe in an event when there yeah. are only 14% of the people that... Yeah. To turn away from lesbians and discuss straight people now, as I know we're all dying to do. That's what um, we're here for on this yeah, podcast. It's, yeah. Straight as fact. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a horrific at you. The worst timeline. Yeah. We're it's, all sitting here in, like, like, suits. And- <laughs> 
our um our logo is like a black background which is a gray q no a gray, <laughs> a gray yes anyway in its early days mardi gras organizers encouraged straight people to come along and demonstrate support for the community mm-hmm. by the 1990s however the presence of straight people had become controversial in 1989 a thousand people were turned away from sleazeball which is one of the dances that's held to fundraise for mardi gras mm-hmm. because it was sold out a similar situation occurred with the 1990s Mardi Gras party. The party coordinator, David Wilkins, responded to calls to limit the number of straight people allowed in, essentially by saying, like, that's not practical. Mm. Uh, he said, I don't know what you do about that. Do you ask ticket sellers or gate attendants to conduct a questionnaire? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's all very well to say straight people don't belong at Mardi Gras, but yeah. how do you know? Yeah, I'd like you to keep that quote in mind for no particular reason. <laughs> Okay. A question. Yeah. <laughs> After the 1991 Mardi Gras party, there was criticism about straight people again, but it had shifted from just being about tickets, mm-hmm. preferably going to people from the community, to criticism of straight people's behaviour. People who went complained that few straight people dressed up were joined in the fun instead of essentially going to kind of just like stare Sectate. at the gay people. Um, yeah. As time went on, there was also the feeling that the parties were losing their identity as gay and lesbian events, with some people estimating that it was as much as 40% straight. There were also reports of straight people attending in order to bash the attendees or to make explicitly homophobic comments. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of lesbians also reported that they got hit on by men a bunch, which they didn't want at all, let alone at a yep. specifically gay event. Yeah, no um, wonder lesbians aren't coming to this party. Yes. One woman, Melissa Henry, who had been the recipient of homophobic comments, made a sign and posted it around the showgrounds, the sleeves. It was taken down by the marshals, but it was up for a while. And it said, remember, you are at an event specifically for the gay and lesbian community. Every ticket sold to a straight meant a gay man or dyke missed out. This makes us angry. If that upsets you, good. Our advice is to fuck off. (laughs) Like, I can't afford it, really. No, yeah. Especially when they are ticketed events and, Mm. yeah. Mm. I see why people are angry. I don't see a solution. I mean, the solution is that straight people are more considerate. Yeah, the solution is to educate straight people. The board again refused to ban straight people and recommended that gay people just buy their tickets earlier. This was met with outrage, and Mardi Gras soon decided it had to meet and decide on a better solution. Mm -hmm. The outcome of that was that only Mardi Gras members would be able to buy tickets in the future. This essentially meant that the cost of tickets was raised, so you had to pay for a yearly membership and then you could buy tickets, which was part of the reason why the reactions were mixed. Um, It meant that, you know, people in the community who were less financially stable might not be able to go anymore, but it was agreed that it probably would lower the amount of straight people. But at what cost? Yes. Yeah. 30 more dollars a year. (laughs) Exactly that cost. There were also concerns about the privacy of those who became members. As a public company, their membership was a public document. Uh, Ah, And it was suggested that instead membership to any gay or lesbian community organization should be able to suffice because at least then the list of members was decentralized. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems reasonable, but I still don't really care for this solution if you just have to pay more money to go to Mardi Gras. Yes. But that's what they went ahead with, and the membership rose from 206 in 1991 to 3,300 in 1992, with 740 associate members, so that's people from uh, other states other than New South Wales. Mm-hmm. This did create a pretty hefty boost in revenue, which didn't go unnoticed to those who were criticising it as being a revenue-raising stunt. Yeah, yeah I, I was, was about to say, surely if they're... If only members are allowed to buy tickets, then can't they just take the extra membership money and put it to lowering ticket prices and balance that out? That's true, but I'm guessing they didn't do that. I, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the party did feel gayer and safer than in recent years, so that's good. Okay. Um, but not quite gay or safe enough. The 1992 sleazeball was still about like a quarter straight people. Um, the- How do we? Yeah, that no, I think this is numbers. just I'm saying about because I feel like this is just kind of people being like I felt like it was like a quarter straight kind of yeah thing, yeah you okay. know? so I'm giving you that not as like hard numbers but as just like how some misc gay people felt while they were there the vibe which is relevant but not statistical data to be clear yeah yeah, yeah but like there's no way of gathering statistical yeah. data on this so that's what we have to use well I mean. I feel like there's a questionnaire coming. <laughs> there's something very bad coming. <laughs> yes. There were fewer incidents of uh, harassment reported, but again, not none. And it was still enough of a problem that the board decided to try another solution, announcing that... Here it comes. <laughs> people applying for membership had to declare if they were gay, straight, bisexual, or transgender. 
Straight and bisexual people were required to further state that they supported the aims of Mardi Gras and might be asked to provide additional documentation. What the hell is What's additional documentation? Proving that they supported gay rights because... Like, here's a photo of me at a protest or something? Or, like, a statement from someone who was gay. So bi people. people had to get, like, a gay to sign yeah. off? Yeah. Nice job, guys. Cool. Yes. I hate you all. <laughs> okay. This was predictably controversial. What the hell? That's so garbage. Some really, really liked it. They believed it demonstrated a strong message of affirmation of Mardi Gras for gay men and lesbians. However, and what transgender and bi people? Some, well, transgender people don't have to provide. At least they don't need a certificate. No, transgender people are not really being catered for, but they're also not being like Targeted. explicitly ousted. So, like, cool. A letter to the Sydney Star Observer in protest of this, however, called the demand for bisexuals to document their support as quote an unbelievable height of hypocrisy that while we're demanding Tasmanians recognize the rights of a minority, so at that point they were trying to get gay sex decriminalized in Tasmania. That mm-hmm. was in the mid-90s. Good job, Tasmania. Mardi Gras should be victimizing and persecuting other minorities. So, let's discuss that. <laughs> I don't have much to say in discussion. Just what the hell? I think that quote in detraction of that decision is quite telling in that first of all the quote that graham carberry decides to use to indicate the detractors is obviously from a gay person yeah Um, both the supporters and the detractors seem to agree that bisexual people aren't really a part of the community Mm, yeah you know it's like that's another minority yeah, 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 a part of our community that is just as valid as any other part of our community. It's another minority it's like, that we should support, but separately. Yes. Yeah. And this is kind of the constant implicit suggestion to secondary and primary text. You know, like, obviously this entire time I've been using the language that the primary and secondary sources do, which is the gay and lesbian community. The event is called the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Yeah. Which kind of creates the impression that bisexual people and also transgender people for that matter either just like weren't involved or didn't exist that's to say nothing of other groups that we obviously now include in the movement i don't mean to suggest that like lgbt is the full extent of the The community in more modern times like asexual people and intersex people have floats in mardi gras and so forth but not in the 90s so i just wanted to acknowledge that for a moment so even though that's the sort of general tone of both secondary and primary sources the occasional stories about bisexual and trans people's presence, like this one, yeah. reveal this as the obvious untruth that it is. Yeah. You know, even if most gay men and lesbians, and for that matter, bi and trans people, regarded themselves as being separate but adjacent communities, you really can't say that they're not very, very closely linked. Yeah. Mm. I didn't do a ton of research just about the community this time, but I've read like a bunch of Australian gay history books in my day and as we've found talking about other places as well as it's nigh on impossible to separate out gay history from bi history from trans history yeah yeah like the question here is not like should we let the bi people in it's should we kick the bi people out like they're already there Mm. yeah yeah i still can't believe you have to get a gay person to sign off on your i don't know what kind of documentation (laughs) people were specifically offered but they needed to offer something yeah i don't think it was necessarily in every case like i suspect that if you ticked bisexual but you like were known to a bunch of gay people, they'd probably be like, fine. But if you were just a random like, person. It, yeah. still, even if it didn't happen most of the time, there is still that like hypothetical, like, you need to get an extra box ticked. Yeah. Gay and lesbian people and transgender people, for that matter, don't. Yeah. I have some more stories about like bisexual and trans people being just sort of present if mm-hmm. you'd like to yes. hear them. Tell us. I so think that's in important. 1993, I mean, they're not fun. <laughs> Okay. In 1993, signs have been displayed at Mardi Gras and Slee saying that displays of heterosexual affection are not welcome. The Australian Bisexual Network and straight trans people objected to this because obviously you can't look at a couple and say that that's a straight couple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One or both of them could be queer. One or both of them could be trans. Yeah, true. I, I shouldn't have to walk through this. <laughs> <laughs> Mardi Gras changed the sign to say that homosexual behavior was the norm at Mardi Gras and homophobia would not be tolerated. So I thought that was really interesting because I feel like, you know, like 1993, obviously that's like 25 years ago now. I think that these sort of discussions about like including bisexual people and transgender people in the community and in pride events are often treated as like, you know, new issues that the young people won't shut up about. And it is yeah. kind of validating even if like bi and trans people are being treated quite badly in these settings mm. to see that they were like still there around and being like hey guys no actually like 
you can't tell if you see someone you've decided is a man and someone you've decided is a woman kissing that they're actually a straight couple. Like, it sucks that we still have to say that today. Yeah, yeah but it's not a new thing. Yeah. yeah. I also, like, the fact that they were willing to change that sign to homosexual, mm. like, whatever is the yeah. norm, that suggests that, I mean, probably it's not universally true, it was done more out of ignorance yeah. than out of bio yeah. transphobia. To continue on things done out of ignorance rather than explicit transphobia. There were sex-segregated spaces available at Sleaze in 1994, and there were some complaints made that it made it difficult for trans people. After discussing with the Transgender Liberation Coalition, Mardi Gras said that those people who genuinely identify as women may enter the women-only space, and those who genuinely identify as men may enter the men-only space. Okay. So I don't know how that really played out in terms of like yeah. how many trans people actually attended this, whether they felt safe whether they actually that. you know felt safe as say a trans woman going into a women's only space at this event and so forth obviously also like there were mixed gender spaces mm-hmm. um, that existed it wasn't the entire thing that yeah. was sex segregated you know it's, it's worth noting that non-binary people have like one room out of three they can go into <laughs> yeah it is again like this isn't 1994 that's the year i was born and yeah. it is kind of nice to picture some like trans person going to Mardi Gras and going into the room that matched their gender and just, like, having the party because we so silence trans history that yeah. even I, who spends a lot of time thinking about trans history, do struggle to not subconsciously kind of carry the impression that, like, trans people showed up in the movement in the last couple years, maybe. Yeah. And still have to beg for the right to exist in the movement. Yeah, no, that, but, yeah. Uh, it's not true. It it's is not, not true. true. Yeah. It's just not true. On a bit of a like slightly more positive note, Mark Gillespie, who was one of the original 1978ers, has written about that original march, saying, The early rainbow nature of the movement was evident, with transgender and Aboriginal people and people from migrant backgrounds all mixing in. Oh, that's good. That is nice. Mm-hmm. So it's clear that bi and trans people were present mm-hmm. and exist. Yeah, breaking news on Queer as Fact. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like, if you kind of pay attention to those little references, that is pretty clear from the secondary sources. But unfortunately, none of the secondary sources about queer history in Australia that I've ever come across really allow us to contextualise how the bisexual community and the trans community and the gay and lesbian communities all interacted with each other, to what degree bi and trans people were involved in events such as Mardi Gras, as organisers for that matter, Mm -hmm. or just attendees. And it never really allows us to discuss their perspectives or to see their perspectives, which Mm. I think is one of the great failings of the Australian queer history field as it stands today. Yes. As I mentioned earlier, a much more diverse range of groups from the Queer Umbrella is sort of openly recognised at Mardi Gras today. Mm -hmm. Um, It is very much still called the Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Yeah, Whether it it should change its name is an ongoing topic of discussion that comes up every year. Mm -hmm. Many older people in the community are resistant to it, in part because the most common suggestion seems to be referring to it as simply the Sydney Mardi Gras, not like anything more specific. Yeah, Um, Over its history, advertisers and the mainstream press had often tried to refer to it as the Sydney Mardi Gras instead of the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Is that because they didn't want to say the word gay? Well, in order to downplay its queerness and to market it more widely. So Mm. I can't remember what year, but in one of the early years, um, the company that designed the T-shirts convinced the committee that if they just put Sydney Mardi Gras on the T-shirts, it would be a more marketable T-shirt and be able to sell straight people. Yeah. Which people objected to because they're like, well, I don't care if straight people want the T-shirt. The T-shirt's for us. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. Yes. In 1994, Channel 9 was pressured by Cadbury to only refer to it as the Sydney Mardi Gras because Cadbury didn't want to have their ads playing while it was being covered in the news because they thought this would tarnish their family image. Oh, my God. You sell chocolate. Like, stay in your lane. As we all know, gays eat chocolate. <laughs> Yeah, that made me sad. I like Cadbury chocolate, but I mean, obviously, like, you know, I'm not shocked that Cadbury is ethically terrible. Yeah, so, like, while I do think that the name should change, I understand that lack of a desire for it to just be called Sydney Mardi Gras. Even though, you know, I don't think that, like, trans people saying that they want to not be called gay and lesbian is trying to de-gay it. No. Um, Yeah. Like, I, I still, yeah, like, that's... Unfortunately, like so many issues with terminology in our community, just not one that has an easy answer. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so much of this episode has been a lot of really heavy, quite political discussion, and so I wanted to sort of end this episode and just sort of tell a few stories about the Mardi Gras parties and about like 
fun times that people have had and things like that. Good. So to give you a bit of an idea of the tone, the Oxford Weekender described the first Lees Ball in 1982 thus... Everyone entered into the spirit of the moment and oozed the feeling all night. Long <laughs> hidden fantasies emerged in yards of net, chul, denim, leather, and naked flesh. There were fluffy ballerinas and leather slaves, semi-naked grandmothers dancing next to semi-naked construction worker peacocks. <laughs> Cowboys, nuns, leather men, Queen Victorias, trans mutants of all descriptions, and one or two vaguely casual people all danced, pranced, and vaguely partied their way to general exhaustion. I like the one or two vaguely casual people. Yeah, there's people who just showed up in jeans and was like, I'm underdressed. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the research I did about Mardi Gras was just kind of trying to find like the experiences of people who had been to Mardi Gras. And a lot of the stories people tell are centered around these parties with common themes of sex, drugs, and a lot of references to the AIDS epidemic. Many of them talk about memorable encounters with beautiful strangers that I decided was a little too adult for this podcast, <laughs> or of taking drugs that come on at the wrong time, or too strongly to comedic effect and things like that, which I decided was a little too adult for this podcast. Many also remember their last parties with friends or lovers who had since passed away from AIDS, and it was noted more than once that it was very common for people to try to live long enough so that they could go to one last Mardi Gras. Oh, no. Fun stories now. <laughs> With uh, no segue, would you like to hear about my favourite ever float? Yes. Yes. So 1988 is the year. This was the bicentennial of the landing of the First Fleet and therefore the invasion and colonisation of Australia by the British. This obviously, as Australia Day does every year, attracted a lot of celebration and protest. There was concern by the committee over what would happen if a pro-bicentennial float tried to enter and like what they should do about it. But the only float commenting on the bicentennial was one by an Aboriginal group satirising the celebrations. It featured actor Malcolm Cole as Captain Cook and two other Aboriginal men in a boat being pulled by white men. Anthony Babici remembers the Aboriginal float and described it as, quote, a camp blackfellas send up of Captain Cook and Sir Joseph Banks, wearing tinsel instead of braid on their outlandish cartoon frock coats, the hats bigger than the ascot scene in My Fair Lady, disdainfully surveying the sea of mostly white faces, then flicked their cheap, oversized lace handkerchiefs in a pantomime of white attitude. <laughs> are there pictures of this float? Yes, there are. I guess I've seen pictures yeah. of this. I haven't. It's it sounds great. Good. It's great, yeah. To, again, take a sharp left turn to another tone with no segue... Mark Trevorrow recounts the phenomenon of the lights going out in the toilets at every Mardi Gras party. Um, so he questioned who did that, saying, have you seen him? Is he an inspired individual with an electrical background, ancient blueprints, and a purse-sized Phillips screwdriver? Or is it a highly organised gang on a roster with links to the very topmost levels of the Mardi Gras board? Gay ghosts. Gay ghost. So basically what seems to happen here, and I don't know if this tradition continues, <laughs> Is that at some point in the men's toilets, the lights go out and stay out for like a few minutes or like 10 minutes or something. And everyone just kind of goes at it in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) And then the lights come back on and people kind of realize who they've been getting off with and kind of like organize themselves and just leave. (laughs) I don't even know who does this now. Yeah. No one knows. I'm calling gay ghosts. You heard it first. (laughs) Um... So Mark recalls one time when, like, this has happened, the lights were out, he was having an intimate moment with a stranger, and somewhere in this crowded room, someone calls out, Steph, Steph, are you there? <laughs> and there's this moment of silence where everyone's like, what are you doing? You know, because that's just... You don't like, identify yeah, people. like, just let it be what it is. And then Steph presumably goes, yeah. <laughs> And the original boy is like, oh, like, how, how's yours? And like, yeah, good. How's yours? Yeah, good. Great. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of keep going at it for a while. And a few minutes later, again, the voice comes and he's like, Steph, Steph. And people are kind of like, oh, God, what are you doing, man? And Steph goes, yeah, what is it? And Poor the original Steph. voice goes, oh, I'll get you to do my taxes on Tuesday. <laughs> I love this person. Yeah. And then... I just... There's like, how did I mess with like, a... Like, at that moment, Steph is probably, like, receiving a blowjob or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Steph is presumably on ecstasy or something, to be clear. Yeah, true. <laughs> oh, not, not Steph. Original voice. Steph yeah. Paula. <laughs> Steph is probably also on ecstasy. I don't know. Yeah, um, anyway... <laughs> I'm just imagining the conversation Steph and that person had to have the next day. Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> Stephen Dunn remembers flat sitting one year with, uh, who I think was his partner with another man, and they decided that they weren't going to go to Mardi Gras that year. They couldn't be bothered with it. And they were sitting on the roof having a drink when they were, quote, rudely but fascinatingly distracted by the sight of a classic Sydney gay boy, capitalised, trying on his party <laughs> costume in a nearby apartment. <laughs> It is over half an hour and half a dozen costumes before we realise there are in fact two of them, identical in all respects. Two classic Sydney gay boys in a classic Sydney gay boy relationship trying to find the classic Sydney gay boy outfit to wear to the classic Sydney gay boy party. And I found it very funny that what they settle on is white t-shirts, cut off jeans and boots. (laughs) After all that, like, seven outfits later. I mean, that's 100% what you do when you're trying to choose an outfit. You put on, like, seven slightly adventurous things and then you're like, I'm going to wear that outfit that looked all right yesterday. That's true. Um, I wanted to finish by talking about the Dykes on Bikes, who have become one of the most popular and iconic parts of the Mardi Gras parade. The 1988 parade was the first appearance of them in Australia. The idea came from Kath Phillips and Kimberly O'Sullivan. Neither of them had ever ridden a motorcycle before. <laughs> they but just rhymed. Like, this looks cool. <laughs> no, they didn't invent Dykes on Bikes. Dykes on no, Bikes no. was invented in America. Um, and they had both been to San Francisco and seen that parade recently and were very deeply affected by seeing the Dykes on Bikes there. Kimberly in particular remembers that she, quote, stared in awe and lust, having never seen such a spectacular demonstration of lesbian power, sex, and visibility. Nice. Which I thought was Good stuff. Good stuff. So they both came back to Australia and decided (laughs) that they needed some Dykes on some bikes in Australia to lust after, I guess. (laughs) And they lobbied Mardi Gras to allow an Australian version to lead the parade, and they were granted permission. Was this before Um, or after they found some Dykes on some bikes? Well, yeah, then they had to deal with the problem of not knowing any dikes with bikes i I assume they they you know they obviously had like lesbian friends yeah yeah, yeah. i assume they they could find lesbians this you know huge group of lesbians with motorcycles for this so they were like right let's go find some (laughs) um so some of them were recruited from amongst their friends but they also put up leaflets in lesbian bars and also just on like any motorbikes they saw outside lesbian bars (laughs) are you gay (laughs) um it was a pretty vague flyer it didn't kind of like specify like what this spectacle was meant to be because obviously like dykes on bikes wasn't that well known in australia at the time Mm -hmm. or exactly like how they should organize themselves on the day so eight bikes turned up and they had a pretty good time deb thompson was one of them she was recruited at one of the bars whether by flyer on bar or motorcycle or by word of mouth i don't know and she showed up on her bike having no idea what to expect she'd never been to mardi gras before but had a great time like leading the parade sort of playing to the crowd and like revving (laughs) and like racing with the other lesbians on their bikes she said that when they got to the end of the parade she was in such a good mood that she wanted to just turn around and drive back again um so yeah like you know every year now obviously lesbians on bikes why why am i saying that (laughs) that doesn't rhyme at all Every year now, Dykes on Bikes is a major part of the parade. And as I said, it's one of the most iconic ones. And it's cool. It is cool. It's It's very cool. So I wanted to end with just a couple of quotes that, again, stress how important and valuable both the 1978 Mardi Gras and all those that follow have been to members of our community. Kate Harrison discusses the first Mardi Gras saying, It was great to be in. I was young, not out for so many years, still having a lot of difficulties with being out as a lesbian. I have no memory as vivid as that night. It was a roller coaster of a night, owning the streets, keeping going against police orders. Mm-hmm. Corby Beard, who pops up in a lot of stories, so I'm sure is a very interesting <laughs> character. For example, I remember him discussing, like, meeting this very beautiful American drag queen and the drag queen showing Corby his passport photo to prove that he was actually very cute and real, like, everyday clothes as well. Frankly, the fact that he looked cute in his passport photo suggests that he yeah. was like How a god. Yeah. <laughs> like, do not let that one go, Corby. <laughs> but Corby Beard says of the Mardi Gras events over the years, what I remember most is the urge just to be there. No matter where I was at the time, buses from Melbourne, trains from Byron Bay, epic crowded car journeys in the pouring rain. Some unspoken compulsion drove me on every year like a pilgrim on the road to Mecca. Party after party, parade after parade. Hmm. Hmm. Clearly, we have to go to Mardi Gras. I guess, I guess we do have to. I think to go we should take Chris back to Mardi Gras. Yeah. 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 Donate to our Patreon, guys. Pay for our trip. We can trip. make that a goal. We recorded it from a float of our very own that is somehow <laughs> a history float. <laughs> a history float, yeah. 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 Good. We can all dress up as like Australian say, yeah. queer people. You can okay. dress up as Captain Finlay. You can dress up as lesbian. You need to do an episode. Okay. okay. I only did the AIDS episode. That's my don't, own Australian do content. <laughs> You can dress up as Noah Rand. 
um, <laughs> become a patron to vote on what Alice dresses up on uh, our money upload next year. <laughs> With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. If you enjoy this episode, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. If you would like to email us more directly, we're queerasfact at gmail.com. We newly have a Patreon, so if you would like to help us sound less, you know, Amateur. sort of rough and grassroots and these polite ways to say it then you can uh, give us money there you can also if you would like to plaster rainbow cues over every inch of your beautiful little body go to our red bubble both the patreon and the red bubble are linked below if you enjoy this episode we would really appreciate it if you left us a review and a rating out of five stars on itunes because it really helps us reach a wider audience i was listening to a podcast the other day and the episode came out like a year ago and it was like oh wow like you know i almost made the embarrassing gaffe of saying itunes instead of apple podcasts that's not what you say anymore and i was like what <laughs> write things about us wherever you like on your like bus station wall whatever yeah i was about to say um, under bridges <laughs> anyway if you do review us on itunes we will read it out here on this podcast at some point and to demonstrate the veracity of that statement we are going to do that right now. Our most recent review is entitled My Favourite Queer History Podcast, and oh. it is by SF Fangirl from America. This one was literally, like, posted in between the last time I refreshed this and now, like, probably while we're recording. So, uh, nice timing. You're, like, really snuck in there. But they say, this is my favourite queer history podcast. The topics are extremely well-researched, and they tell the audience about the source and quality of the sources. <laughs> Do we ever? <laughs> Case in point, their Stonewall episodes mentioned a number of never substantiated rumors slash myths. I listened to another podcast episode on Stonewall, and it was full of those myths, but presented the, these as truths without question. <laughs> the format where one podcaster does the research and presents it while one or two others listen, ask questions, get clarification, or joke about the history is a lot of fun. There's really good interplay among the team. The audio quality has improved from their earlier episodes, and I have oh. little trouble hearing or understanding what's being said. I greatly appreciate and I'm slightly skeptical of that comment. <laughs> But it's good to know. I yeah. hit play on one of our earlier episodes um, for some reason earlier in this week, and I was like, oof. <laughs> 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 I'm personally not interested in the ancient history topics. Well, Alice, oh. and I can leave. Um, we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do a lot of other stuff. Yeah. My favourites are much more recent, but I've surprisingly enjoyed stories further back like Anne Lister before she became a lesbian household name because of the TV show. I'm very proud of Anne. I really appreciate learning that a number of queer people have managed to live reasonably fulfilling queer lives despite the homophobic times that they lived in. So thank you very much for that review. That was very thorough and very specific. Yeah. Which we always ask for and no one ever does. So you're my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. Um, yeah. It's it's good to know like what specific things people like and don't like. Yeah. Um, it's also good to know that all of your Stonewall work was appreciated. Good, because that destroyed me. <laughs> I'm glad you're still here. <laughs> thank you very much, SF Fangirl. The next one is titled, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then it's got like this emoji. The praying emoji. I guess, yeah. And it's from Ashley White Girl uh, from America. There's lots of E's. I guess. That's what's happening. Um, as you all know, it is incredibly difficult to find well-researched in case of queer history. <laughs> well done, well done, well done, well done, for sure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Thank you. We do know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ashley, which I will Very close. nice. <laughs> Ashley! <laughs> uh, do you want another one? Yes. Yep. This one is from Ren Wild Hunt and... It, I realise I haven't been saying how many stars these are, so they've all been five stars, okay? Good. Um, <laughs> it's what we deserve. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and they say, I love this podcast so much. I've learned so much about queer history and politics that I wasn't aware of and hadn't heard people discuss before. The subjects studied are always such fascinating people that I wish I could meet, and mm. I'm always left wanting to know more about these people in their lives. This is one of the only LGBT plus podcasts to my knowledge that has even discussed asexuality. And I look forward to learning more about Ace Arrow figures in episodes to come. I'm also looking forward to their 50th anniversary of Stonewall episodes coming up this year. So I hope you've been enjoying those because this is like the third or four of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was very nearly out of date. But yeah, I, I hope they've lived up to our expectations. Also, yeah, we've done like a couple of episodes where we've mentioned that someone is possibly... Mm. Yeah, and I really want to do more of that. Yeah, yeah, and we do sort of keep that in mind and we are committed to trying to represent as many experiences of this community as possible which we unequivocally count asexual and aromantic people as being part of so i'm glad that that's resonating with you i hope we continue to do this episode's justice as we bring it out in the future we'll be back for the last of our pride month episodes on the 22nd of this month when we'll be talking about depictions of stonewall in the media thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then <laughs> <laughs>